Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Happy Independence Day, and thanks for listening to this special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good Monday morning and welcome to this Best of Mornings with Carmen on listener-supported Faith Radio. Carmen is off again. I'm Paul Perot, her producer. Like many today, Carmen is enjoying the day off as the observed holiday for the 4th of July, and she'll be back tomorrow. But as Carmen likes to do, I'm going to ask the same question, where in the word are you? On Friday, we were heading into the holiday weekend, and I mentioned a verse I like to go to on the topic of freedom, which is Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, as I mentioned back on Friday, in the United States, we like to think of our freedoms and liberties in terms of what some call negative freedoms. That is, where we are not restricted by outside forces and entities. Now, that is an important kind of freedom. You might remember Jesus preaching in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. That was part of Jesus' mission. But as Christians, we are to seek not just negative freedoms, but also positive freedoms, not being bound by sinful and destructive desires, and rather to use our freedom to help others. In Galatians 5, Paul adds in verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. The Corinthian church liked to tout their freedoms to do what they wanted because they felt God's grace allowed them to do it. But Paul corrected them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, by using their words against them. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. Okay, so that's where in the word I am, where are you? Tell us by texting 877-933-248. Eight, four. Well, again, this is the best of mornings with Carmen LaBerge. And coming up next, America is changing. Gone are the days of robust small towns and the values and culture they had. I grew up on a farm in a small town. I, in many ways, miss that world. And I still hold on to a lot of those values. Grace Olmstead does as well. She talked about it in a book called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We Left Behind. Carmen talked with Grace and May about her experience and trying to keep that legacy alive. That conversation comes up next on this Best of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on listener-supported Faith Radio. What fun to have joining us today, Grace Olmstead. Uh, She is an author. She's also a wife and a mom. She lives in 
Washington, D.C. The book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Grace, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. So take us to Emmett, Idaho. Emmett, Idaho is a farm town. It is in rural Idaho near the Snake River and Boise, the capital. And for the last couple hundred years, it's been a farm town. It's been agriculturally based, a hub for fruit orchards and crop farming and a variety of dairies and ranches. But over the last several decades, probably especially since the 1970s and 80s, a lot of those operations have gone away. And a lot of the agribusinesses and forms of support and community that existed in that town have also disappeared. Now, the reason I care about Emmett is because my great-great-grandfather and grandmother on both sides of my family homesteaded there back in the turn of the century, and they've lived there for multiple generations up until my grandpa Wally, and they farmed there for generations. And so I have these deep ties to Emmett as well. But you don't live in Emmett, Idaho anymore. Um, Much of the conversation in Uprooted, um, you know, just tends to that reality. You talk about two kinds of people. What are the two kinds of people related to Emmett, Idaho? Wallace Stegner was this Pulitzer Prize winning author and uh, essayist who suggested that in America there are two types of people, what he called the boomers and the stickers. And that they have, in his words, torn apart and rebuilt American communities over the course of our nation's history. He suggested that boomers are those who go in and extract value from a place and then leave it behind when the boom goes bust. Um, Or perhaps those who work for uh, those who are exploiting the resources, those who don't have the capital, social or financial capital, to really invest in that community. But the stickers, in his words settle down and make that place an actual place. They invest their time, their money, their heart and soul into making that place a flourishing community. And they stay there even when things are difficult. And so he suggested that we need more stickers in America, but we have a whole lot of boomers. And I myself left Idaho for college, settled on the East Coast. Uh, My husband was in the Air Force stationed outside Washington, D.C., And I haven't returned home, but I've often grappled in my life with this question of whether I'm living more like a boomer or more like a sticker. So I resonate with um, so much of, uh, I mean, even just the way the introduction of uh, of Uprooted begins. um, I have stood in a similar familiar graveyard um, with my husband and, um, and his kids and had conversations about who these people were and where we're standing um, in very rural northern Indiana, um, where we don't live and where the life that is lived is very different than the life that we live um, in greater Nashville. Certainly different than life that many of our listeners are living in, let's say, the Twin Cities. But we also have a lot of folks listening right now in communities like Emmett, Idaho. And the relationship between um, those who who are there long-term, generation to generation, and those who, for all kinds of reasons, um, are not there anymore. I feel like a part of this conversation is about the relationships between those two groups of people. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. And about the ways in which oftentimes we, as you say, have to move for various reasons. 
but maybe have these feelings that keep drawing us back homeward. Uh, we oftentimes, I think, call it nostalgia, right? When we miss our homelands for some reason. And nostalgia can have a bad name. People um, rightly accuse some of using nostalgia to view their homelands in too, um, too positive of a light, not seeing all of their brokenness or their needs clearly. But I think the beautiful thing about nostalgia is oftentimes it shows us the best parts of our childhood or our growing up years or the places we're from. And it can draw us to ask ourselves, what are the things about that past that I would love to carry forward and make sure that my children or grandchildren get to benefit from? Um, but I think that the people who stay in a community can often feel unheard or unseen by the larger world, especially in rural areas where there has been a lot of extraction and a lot of exodus. They don't feel seen or heard in the larger national conversations. And oftentimes a lot of voices in the media, including mine, are um, in these media hubs which exist along coastlines or in major cities. And so I think there's much work that could be done to connect the two populations in various ways to allow them to learn from each other for those who are homesick to maybe ask themselves, what are the things I'm homesick for? And how can I make sure that even in a new place, I'm carrying forward some of those good traditions and memories? Okay, so I like that a lot. I like the invitation to reconnect, to reroute, to cultivate. Um, I love the way that you use um, farming imagery and language, both literally and metaphorically, I really appreciate the way you dig around in the very contemporary modern issues of survival versus thriving for farms, for family farms, and for farming communities. Um, so let's take a very brief break. When we come back, will you talk a little bit about the realities of farming today? Because um, I feel like this is a sweet spot of conversation for you and one that actually might surprise our listeners in terms of your depth of knowledge. Mm. Will, that be, will that work? For sure. Yeah, All right. let's I'm, do it. <laughs> okay. I'm talking with Grace Olmstead. The book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. We'll be right back. Welcome to the First Church of Mercy, where the doors of love swing open wide. Continuing my conversation with author Grace Olmstead. Uh, the book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Um, Grace, one of the things that you, uh, you know, that you dig around in that you till the soil of here um, in Uprooted is a conversation about the realities of farming today. Um, why is it that towns are not just having a hard time surviving, but certainly having a hard time thriving? Well, a lot of rural towns existed as part of a local and regional farm economy. They were full of agribusinesses and people who were working in the agricultural and the food industry, and they were helping the farmers in their communities get their product to market. So in the case of Emmett, there was a very strong hub there for uh, the local fruit production. So there were packing sheds. There was a lot of shipping that they were doing out of Emmett itself. There was a cannery so that things could be turned into canned goods or preserved goods uh, and then sold as value-added pieces of agricultural produce. There was a lot that was done in the realm of having frozen food sheds and things like that. And so what you saw in Emmett was this thriving, bustling, small town economy. 
But over the last several decades, what we've seen is that the agricultural industry as a whole has severely concentrated and it's gone national and global in a lot of different sectors. So, for instance, in the realm of seed production or um, seed sales, Monsanto, which is a name that a lot of people will recognize because they sell a lot of the corn seed throughout the United States, Monsanto has actually merged into Bayer, which is a global company, and it's now one of four um, seed companies that control pretty much all of the seed production and sales throughout the world. Um, you see similar things happening in uh, the meat industry. Smithfield and Tyson are the big names in those industries and, and on down the list. But what that does at the local level is it means that there are no longer those local hubs that allow farmers to work with their neighbors, that create local jobs, that help people get their product to market with um, kind of more of an even distribution of costs. And so there's a lot that's happened there to mean that Emmett has emptied out. It's emptied out of jobs. It's lost a lot of young people because they can't get work locally. And a lot of the farmers who still exist there, which is a waiting number, increasingly feel like their costs are constantly going up as they try to get their product to market and the profit margins are slim to none. Conversations uh, about meat, about produce, about seeds. I feel like now this might locate me, this might socially locate me pretty quickly. I feel like those are conversations um, we don't just have around the dinner table. We have frequently with neighbors, with friends, with uh, folks across the country. And we happen to be those people who are privileged to have a little orchard and a little garden um, and raise, you know, three head of beef cattle each year so that we can divide it up among our six kids and ourselves. So I feel like so privileged, right, to be rooted Um, And to be cultivating and to have kids who understand that when it's time to pick the peaches, everything else has to be set aside because they have to be picked and they have to be processed if we're going to have peaches, um, you know, over the winter. Like I I get this at a personal level, but I think a lot of people, an, an amazingly, alarmingly large percentage of the population is completely disconnected from the sources of food today. It's so true. I think it's less than 2%. It could be even less than 1% of the nation's population still works on a farm at this point or is a farmer by uh, any definition of the term. And, And our connections to farms and rural land have really waned as agriculture has consolidated, just because as there's less population working these farms, the opportunities to network with them, to get to know them, to even step foot on a farm wane as well. And I think what you're pointing out so beautifully is that there's a sense of belonging, of stewardship, of even just having a greater sense of identity in place that comes from knowing a farmer, having your own fruit trees, or doing some sort of Um, work that gives you a tangible sense of connection to local soil. But modern Americans oftentimes don't get that. And those who do often, as you point out, are are wealthy enough in some way, shape, or form to be able to do that, either in the form of having land at their disposal or the ability to shop at farmer's markets where the produce and other goods are oftentimes just a lot more expensive than that which we get from the grocery store. And I think there's a lot of interesting reasons for this. Uh, For instance, subsidies toward corn and soybeans oftentimes drive down the price of certain cheap junk foods that we purchase and drive up the cost of fresher goods. 
it's also true that the organic market, for instance, could still see a lot of growth before supply begins to meet demand. And that difference between supply and demand at this point means that those goods are oftentimes more expensive. So I think there's a lot we could do and seek to converse about in terms of making local food more accessible and helping people of all different income levels be able to have access to and relationships with their local farmers. So I know that um, like Princeton Seminary now has a farm program and I know that there are lots of churches across the country that are developing, you know, like community gardens out of unused land or ball fields that used to have kids on them and don't now. I'm interested to know, are do you hear, are you in touch with, like, is there any effort to reinvigorate, like, vocational ag in high schools across the country? Um, do you see efforts in, in terms of revitalizing like you talked about, there were canneries. I remember those, but I don't know of any local communities that still have like can- community canneries. Are you seeing any of that? Some, and I think it's very interesting to see how the pandemic last year, for all its incredible tragedies and difficulties, was really a wake-up call in terms of our food system for a lot of people. Um, You had, for instance, a lot of slaughterhouses closed down, and many of those slaughterhouses served farmers for miles around, for states around, and their ability to then get their product to market was completely cut off. And so a lot of hogs, for instance, were euthanized last year because they could not be um, moved to a slaughterhouse, and it was more expensive for the farmer to try and keep them up than to kill them, which in my mind is also an issue of Um, how our humanity intersects with our food system. But in response to a lot of those issues, we saw local and regional efforts at building back in slaughterhouses. Um, You saw people opening and starting to run their own local flour mills, Um, just different places and spaces in which people said, we need more diversity in our food system to strengthen it, make it more resilient and less brittle, and to help people have greater access to their food sources In terms of schools, I know um, Lisa Held on her podcast, The Farm Report, has talked to um, inner city school initiatives aimed around aquaponics and other food systems that you can actually do within urban centers to help very food insecure, have greater access, and to be educating those young people how to prepare and eat a lot of things that are very hard to come by in their neighborhoods like that are really amazing uh, as well. I'm um, I'm remembering a conversation we had here um, about uh, Hope Farm School, which is uh, which is an effort to actually get kids out into an ag environment and teach them the whole warp and woof of uh, of farm life. And I'm appreciating models emerging like that. Um, in locations across the country and, you know, want to be celebrating those things. Um, all right. I want to just lift up um, one name here at the end of the conversation and let you uh, reflect for just a moment. The name is Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is an incredible farmer, poet, essayist, novelist, you name it. <laughs> He's probably written it, um, who grew up in rural Kentucky and left home to go to school in Um, I think he went to the University of Kentucky, but then went from there. He had a Guggenheim Fellowship, went to Italy, ended up teaching at New York University in the middle of one of the largest cities in the nation. 
and then felt this call homeward and left it all behind to move back to rural Kentucky with his wife and kids and has continued to write there and to serve that community for the rest of his life. I had the great privilege of getting to do some mail correspondence with him. I'm just sporadic, but uh, letters back and forth. I got to do a couple interviews with him for the New York Times and the American Conservative. And those conversations really planted the seeds, so to speak, that this book then blossomed from. And as I talked to him about farming, he urged me that if I were going to write about it, I should write about it from the perspective of my family and my own as a member of that family. And so that's what I sought to do with this book and with its message. But when I read a lot of his work as a young person just graduated from college, it's really what made me homesick in a new way for the first time. It wasn't like I was just eager to get home for the next visit, but he made me question how being an Idahoan made me who I am, how being a member of my family, the Howard family, had influenced my loves, my passions, the traditions that I tried to institute with my own kids. And all of those questions really then drew me to this larger question and idea of what might I owe to the past and to place. And so this book is an attempt to look at that, to look at all of the different things that were planted in my home soil that made it flourish and made it beautiful and made my own growing up here special. And then to ask, what can I now do to carry forward some of those blessings to the next generation? Whether I return or, or stay here in Northern Virginia, how can I keep up that work and back as my ancestors gave of their lives to bless me. Um, I love it. The book is a delight, um, as are you, Grace. Uh, the book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Grace Olmstead is the author. You can follow her on Twitter at Gracie, with a Y, Olmstead. Grace, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. We'll be right back. Again, thanks for listening to this Best of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio for this Monday after the 4th of July. Carmen is still celebrating with her family. She'll be back with a new show tomorrow. So today, again, we're looking back at some of the favorite conversations on Mornings with Carmen over the last several months. Among them is a conversation with Thaddeus Williams. Thaddeus is a professor of systematic theology at Talbot School of Theology in California. He also taught ethics for the Blackstone Legal Fellowship and for the Federalist Society in Washington. Washington, D.C. One of the recurring conversations in our nation today is dealing with our country's sins of racism, both in the past in forms of slavery and Jim Crow, and even today, where because of those past sins, there's still a separation between people of different ethnic backgrounds. So how do we best address this to help bring reconciliation and unity? There are some competing ideas in the modern day, including the ideas of critical race theory. Well, Thaddeus recently released a book he helped edit featuring many voices around this issue. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Carmen had a great conversation with him a few months ago. We'll listen to that again in about five minutes. By the way, yes, we do have copies of the book to give away this morning. So to get in the drawing, all you need to do is text the word book, just those four letters, B-O-O-K. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll send you back a kickback message. There's a link. Click on that and get yourself entered into the drawing. Again, that conversation with Thaddeus Williams, just five minutes away. This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio.
I meet too many moms and dads who are frustrated by their teen's lack of communication. The only thing they ever get is a grunt or a one-word answer. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Maybe that's the case in your home, too. So start asking open-ended questions. Don't jump in with the answer, and don't belittle your kid if they have a wacky response. Try it out. Ask your teen things like, what's one thing you'd want to change about our family? Or, who's the greatest sports hero of all time? Or, when was the last time you laughed out loud and why? Have some fun with it. You might be surprised by the responses they blurt out when you engage them in conversation. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. I'm excited to bring you uh, Thaddeus Williams. You're going to just totally love him. You can follow him on Twitter at Thaddeus Will. You can find him online at ThaddeusWilliams.com. He is working toward a 21st century re-reformation centered on the triune God of the Bible, which, you know, is right up uh, my alley. So, Thaddeus, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It's an absolute joy to be with you, Carmen. So you um, you have written a book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians should ask about social justice. And I'm just going to pitch this out there. You know, social justice is just as soon as you say it, um, (laughs) people have a reaction and a response just to the words. So talk about sort of where we are at this point in time and writing a book on this topic. Yeah, it is like putting those two words together is like throwing Mentos into a soda can. It's just it's explosive. People are going to bring all kinds of assumptions to the conversation. If you're saying social next to the word justice, then for a lot of folks out there, you're a card-carrying communist. I've been called a Marxist, a commie, a socialist, all kinds of stuff in the last couple months since the book has been out, which if people just (laughs) bothered to even read some of the blurbs, they'd see it's actually an argument against all that. Uh, So, so yeah, the the words themselves are – triggering for people really on both sides of the political spectrum. And so what I'm up to in the book is trying to say, look, these are the raging controversies of the 21st century. And as Christians, we we got to think biblically about this. If we aren't thinking biblically, then we're just going to get swept up with the trends um, or be reactionary against the trends when the truth is the Bible offers a far more compelling and beautiful vision of justice than anything being called social justice these days. So this is not a book that you wrote all by yourself. Talk about this as a collaborative effort. Yeah, so it sort of dawned on me. I'm a professor of theology at Biola University, and I was meeting with a student, man, oh man, it must have been like almost two years ago at this point, and she was sharing her story of fighting human trafficking, fighting sex slavery um, before she was saved. And a student said that she was trying to do social justice from a a position of rage and revenge and resentment and hate. And then when she got saved, it's not like she just threw her hands up in the air like, oh, who cares about justice? Who cares about the victims of 
human trafficking, she she continues to pursue justice, but it's it's marked by the fruit of the spirit. It's marked by love instead of hate. It's marked by joy instead of resentment. It's marked by patience instead of being offended at everything. And so she was telling her story. I was like, man, that's so much of what I'm trying to say in the book. What if I just had you share your story? And she was gung-ho for the idea. And then we had 11 more um, co-authors that God just kind of opened the door. We have ex-neo-Nazis. We have people who are ex-critical race theorists. Um, Just a, a vast spectrum of people who've been set free from really bad ideologies because of the gospel. And for me, that, that's my favorite part of the book is honestly their stories because it, it puts flesh on the bones of what I'm arguing and shows you that God is alive and well and, and moving people into justice in a way that starts with the gospel first. All right, if you're going to read uh, one book, on Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, that's the book you should read, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. Thaddeus Williams is the primary author. Other people's stories are told in the book as well. Thaddeus, talk with us about celebrating like social justice and yet asking good questions about it. Yeah, so what I found is it's helpful to just make a basic distinction. Mm-hmm. In the book, I talk about the kind of justice as Christians we should rally behind. Um, I call that social justice A. This would because be, it's awesome. Yeah, A is for awesome. This would be our brothers and sisters in the first century overturning the, the human dumps of the Roman Empire where unwanted kids were cast away like garbage. And our brothers and sisters who understood the gospel that God adopted us when we were unwanted. He brought us into God, into his family. He redeemed us through Jesus. They went to the literal human dumps and within a generation put an end to that. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the resistance movement standing up against Hitler and the Nazis. This is Christians abolishing slavery in the UK under William Wilberforce in America under, you know, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass. So there is a kind of justice that as Christians we should get really excited about because it's commanded in Scripture. Do justice as a recurring biblical command. But then there's this other kind that I call social justice B. For bad. For bad. (laughs) Yeah, we got awesome and bad. And the, the bad kind a lot of this book is just explaining why it's bad because it's it's so trendy right now. It's making huge inroads in churches around the country. And a lot of Christians out there have a hunch that it's bad, but they, they can't really articulate why. What What's incompatible with the biblical worldview about today's trendy social justice movement? So that's a big chunk of the book is just trying to clarify what's so beautiful about biblical justice versus its counterfeits in the 21st century. I'm talking with Professor Thaddeus Williams. You can follow him on Twitter at Thaddeus Will. We are talking about confronting injustice without compromising truth, and we'll be right back. We need a strong God. Yeah. We need the real God. Yeah. The God with the resurrection power from the grave. All right, Thaddeus, let's pick up where we left off. Much of this book is 
uh, maybe helping me see justice as vertical, not just justice as horizontal. Can you explain that to people? Yeah. So justice, just a basic definition that's been used throughout church history, you can find it in scripture, is the idea of giving others their due. Justice is giving others what they're due. Well, as Christians, we need to start vertically with the ultimate capital O, other. Who is God? Who's the creator? And what does the creator do? He's do everything. He's worthy of our worship. You know, as the, the Westminster Catechism puts it, the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's really the starting point of a biblical approach to justice. So think of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one in Exodus 20, have no gods before God. And so I argue in the book that any vision of, quote, social justice that doesn't start there is going to turn into social injustice. It's going to have us bowing on our knees to some false god, whether we're bowing to the government as God. You know, as G.K. Chesterton famously said, once you abolish God, the government becomes God. That's true of a lot of social justice movements today. It, it tends towards totalitarianism because it's worshiping government rather than God. Um, it might have us on our knees to the self, that I get to define myself. Anybody who disagrees with my self-defined self is my oppressor. But I find in the church, one of the biggest idols that, that skews our vision of justice is the false god of social acceptance. So we can have the false god of the state, the false god of self, and the false god of social acceptance, where I just so desperately want a pat on the back from culture. I want to be accepted into the mainstream. I don't want to be viewed as on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be called names. And so there's a whole lot of Christians out there, Carmen, who are answering deep questions like what's the meaning of our biology or the meaning of marriage or the meaning of freedom, not based on scripture, but based on what we think will get us liked. So I think I want to say out loud to our listeners, first of all, one thing I know about Thaddeus Williams is that he doesn't hate oppressed people or broken people or hurting people. He actually loves them. And what he's really trying to do is oppose much of what flies under the banner of social justice today is helping us, I think, find our feet and the courage of our convictions in the midst of conversations where Thaddeus, in my own experience, like, right, I'm trying to have a conversation about racial reconciliation, and then somebody doesn't like those words. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not allowed to use those words. I have to use other words. And I must begin from the premise that what you have described as social justice B is is true truth and cannot be questioned. And any attempt to question it, you know, just ends in me being called names. And yep. because I don't respond well to being called names, and then I roll my eyes, I am, that's why I do radio. People don't like the eye rolling. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> like, right? I So, but that's the challenge that we face in real conversations today. So our listeners are challenged. They want to be good social justice warriors. They want to be doing good. They want to be on the forefront of, uh, you know, of orphan care and ministry to widows. And I mean, they they want to be that. They want to hum walk humbly with our God. And yet, as Christians, it's hard right now in the culture to even enter into this discourse. Yeah. And, and part of the problem there is something I described 
in the book as I call it the Newman effect. And the Newman effect, you know, this goes back to one of the most viral interviews ever. Um, but it was a 2018 interview between a Canadian psychologist named Jordan Peterson, who many of the listeners are probably familiar with. And he was debating some of the most hot button topics like feminism, the patriarchy, the gender pay gap, transgenderism, you know, all the stuff you're not supposed to talk about at the Thanksgiving table kind of stuff. Uh, he was going toe to toe with Kathy Newman from the UK's Channel 4. And he would make a point, and this, this very quickly became a meme, where Kathy Newman would respond with, so you're saying, that was kind of her go-to phrase, so you're saying, and here's a, a few real examples, she said, so you're saying women just aren't smart enough to run these top companies. And he's like, no, <laughs> that's actually not what I'm saying at all. So you're saying women just need to deal with it. They're never going to be equal. And he's like, no, that, that's also not what I'm saying. So you're saying transgender activists are going to lead to mass genocide. And he's like, nope. So you're saying we should arrange our society to be like lobsters. And he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But I argue in the book that we're, we're sort of all Kathy Newmans now, <laughs> that, that we hear a position that sounds different, and we automatically kind of tar and feather it with the worst possible connotations. We, we, we paint it in the most damnable, cartoonish, and inflammatory light possible. And I argue in the book, we, we just got to, as Christians especially, we got to do better. We got to do better. So if somebody says racism is still a problem, then it, the easiest thing is to just to do the Kathy Newman game of, so you're saying we should all become Marxists. Or somebody, let, let's take COVID. Somebody says, you know, you should wear a mask in public. Well, so you're saying you love totalitarianism and an authoritarian state? And they're like, no. Or somebody says, we shouldn't wear a mask. And the response is that the Newman effect kicks in and it's, so you're saying you want to kill more grandmas? Like, like that's basically, I'm, I'm only slightly embellishing, but this is the way even Christians are having conversations about important topics today. And so I argue in the book that, man, we just, we got to do better if we care about truth. So we have to hit the pause button. I think that we have to, I think so many of us just have our foot on the accelerator all the time in a conversation. Yep. And in, instead, I need to hit the brake. I need to recognize that the other person has a contribution to make to the conversation. I need to stop assuming that I know what they're saying or what they mean by what they're saying. And I have to stop and actually ask. Yep. And so, you know, for me to simply do that in front of other people and say, what do you mean by that? When you say conciliation instead of reconciliation, what do you mean and why are you using that term? Or um, why does the word reconciliation, why is that now offensive to you? I'm trying in my conversations, particularly with guests whose uh, skin pigment is different, is you know darker than my own, and guests who are male, and guests who come from you know, a social location different than mine, you know, I'll just come right out and say, okay, I need you to tell me what you mean when you yeah. use that term. And because I, I don't assume I know, but I yeah. also, but I also am not willing to simply yield ground when an assumption is being made about because I'm white, that I am then also racist. 
or, you know, or go down the list. I mean, the list is long. So um, I I think that it's helpful that your book is very helpful in helping us ask the questions that we should be asking. But then you do more than that because you also give us the substance of how to respond. And that is particularly helpful. So I wanted to, you know, I just wanted to publicly thank you for that. Absolutely. And and what you're saying, Carmen, about just asking good questions rather than just projecting a bunch of assumptions on people, that's not just a good tactic for having better conversations. It's also profoundly Christ-like in the sense that if you look at the red letters of the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus asks in the red letters of the New Testament over 150 questions, over 150 questions in the four Gospels. And so Jesus was highly skilled at asking the right questions. And I think if if we care about being Christ-like in this weird cultural moment where everything's kind of polarized, that we need to get better at asking those kinds of good questions. Yeah. All right. We're going to have to have you back to talk about uh, uh, just a a list, a litany of other things. Um, I'm definitely going to want to talk about the re-reformation because that uh, that excites me as well. I am am a person who thinks we need a new reformation. My guess is you're talking about uh, the same thing or similar topics. So Thaddeus Williams, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Give our greetings to all our friends out there at Biola. Um, and, um, yeah, just, it's just a delight to make your acquaintance over the air today. Thaddeus Williams, you can find him at ThaddeusWilliams.com on Twitter at Thaddeus Will. The book is Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. We'll be right back. Well, thanks again for listening to the special Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio for this day after the 4th of July. Carmen, we'll be back tomorrow. I'm your producer, Paul Perot. And again, we just heard a few moments ago from Thaddeus Williams, who is the editor and a contributor to the book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And we have a few copies to give away. So if you'd like to be in the drawing, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. I'm Paul Perot. We'll be back for hour number two of this Best of Mornings with Carmen shortly here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.